I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Hi, I'm Stuart, and I have a cold. Uh, we realized that I might be able to stumble through an introduction, but matching wits with our speaker in Q&A was probably out of the question. It would become a comedic episode. So uh, we cast around for who might be a proper inquisitor for this speaker, and uh, we got a volunteer. Uh, tonight's your chance to have your written question, uh, your provoking question, intoned by a distinguished New York Times uh, journalist, John Markoff. John probably won't mind if I mention that he has a book coming out on uh, robots and robotics uh, called Machines of Loving Grace, and there will be an event about that at the interval, um, I think in September or so. Now, economics ideally is a form of long-term thinking, uh, a rigorous form. But it seems to connect with people best when it's matched with an anthropological perspective. And our speaker tonight uh, trained in anthropology. And he learned about long-term thinking from his uh, field study work in Mexico with the Mayans. Uh, the Mayans had, at the time of Columbus's arrival on these continents, uh, a more accurate calendar and a much longer-term calendar than anything Europeans had or could imagine. He and Markov go back a long way, so I think that will be productive. Um, whenever Markov needs a really pithy quote for an article that needs a pithy quote, uh, he calls Sappho and he gets one. That's gone on probably 40 or 50 times at least, and I expect we'll get more of it tonight. Please welcome Paul Sappho. Thank you, Stuart. Um, I'm sorry not to be grilled by Stuart afterwards, but also it's, um, I'm a little relieved, uh, especially after I discuss frightening how much he knows about my background that I never talk about. Here's what I want to do in, in the next 45 minutes or so, is if you all remember the, the next economy, the, the so-called new economy of 1997 and 1999, well, it's all arriving late and in unexpected ways. I think we're in a phase transition state in the economy, and it started with rivulets of events about 100 years ago, but really that stuff that started in the 90s is congealing in unexpected ways, and it's going to shape at least the next half century of our economic landscape. It's, you know, at the highest level, quite simply what happens is we get a technological innovation, a media innovation or the like. And media innovations lead to economic shifts in a very specific way. The new forms of media technology appear, new models emerge, they lead to entirely new kinds of products, both real and virtual, and they end up utterly changing how we live and work. Quite simply, as has been observed, first we invent our technologies, then we turn around and we use our technologies 
to reinvent ourselves as individuals, as communities, and as entire societies. And we all have the good fortune to be at ground zero of one of those quite remarkable shifts. And of course, being in the middle of it, sometimes we forget just how astonishing what it is. So just a comment about what I'm doing. This is a little different than many SALT talks. I'm not here backed up by a book. I'm actually sharing some thoughts in process, some explorations I'm doing, and I'm going to share what I've learned so far in the spirit of provoking a conversation and, and also hoping to get ideas and insights back as a consequence. Now, one rule I follow as a forecaster is always look back twice as far as you're looking forward. As Mark Twain allegedly said, history doesn't repeat itself, but very often it rhymes. And if you look back at the earlier stuff, you can get real insights into what is happening to today. So I'll take you back to just before 1900 in this picture, the worker in front of a then newfangled time clock. This picture, I think, perfectly captures the essence of what the emerging industrial economy was at that moment in time. It's important to keep in mind that economies organize around a challenge. They often arise around overcoming a, overcoming a scarcity. And the scarcity in the early days of the industrial economy was stuff. That the big challenge for the captains of industry at the time was how to make enough stuff cheaply enough to satisfy the desires of an emergent middle class and, and the working class who were working in the factories. And part of the way they did it was to systematize manufacturing. Uh, the central actor was the worker, the woman here in front of the time clock. And for me, the time clock was a perfect symbol of the philosophy of the time, how to organize workers with machine-like efficiency in the service of overcoming scarcity. So jump ahead a few years to Henry Ford here with a Model T in, in 1908. 1908 was the year that automobiles took off on their exponential upward climb in popularity. And, um, and the Ford Model T was, was a really important development there because by 1914, an assembly line worker on a Ford plant could afford to buy a Model T with just four months' salary. Again, make enough stuff cheaply enough to meet the desires and demands of an emerging uh, middle class. And by the way, there's a wonderful, though slightly apocryphal, story about the Model T that captures this. Henry Ford once famously said, you can have any color Model T you want, so long as it's black. And you ask yourself, why did he pick black? Well, obviously, you know, roads were not paved then, things were very dusty. He obviously asked a software engineer what the best color would be. Well, as the story goes, they actually very carefully chose black, and they tested it for just one thing, and that was how quickly the paint dried. Because the faster the paint dried, the faster they could run the line. The story is slightly apocryphal, but the essence is true. They were very, very meticulous about everything, all the way down to the kind of paint they chose in the service of manufacturing efficiency. So time goes on, the industry, captains of industry, the industrial economy get better and better at making stuff and producing more and more stuff until 
you know, the 30s and the 40s, and World War II arrives. And World War II was a moment in time which was the apotheosis of the industrial economy. Many brave people fought and died on all sides of that conflict. But a key reason that World War II was won by the Allies was because the industrialists at the time had got so efficient at making stuff, they were capable of making more stuff than the other side could blow up. And the real heroes of this, apart from the people on the front lines, were, were two individuals. One, William Knudsen, here on the cover of Time magazine. He'd worked for Henry Ford. He had been head of GM's Chrysler division. And he, at the start, just as we were mobilizing for World War II, uh, came to Washington and or organized the entire industrial process, what Roosevelt called the arsenal of democracy. And I'll, I'll quote a passage of, of Knudsen's. At the time, he said, if we get into the war, the winning of it will be purely a question of material and production. If we know how to get out twice as much material as everyone else and know how to get it and use it, we are going to come out on top and win. As a commentator at the time said, England's battles were won on the plain fields of Eton. America's will be won on the assembly lines of Detroit. And the statistics of the time are astonishing. 1941, uh, 1942 May, the Battle of Midway, the turning point in the Pacific War, America went into that battle with three and a half aircraft carriers. In 1944, the arsenal of democracy was producing eight aircraft carriers per month, one plane every 15 minutes, 150 tons of steel per minute, 50 merchant ships per day. By the end of the war, 70% of the American economy was devoted to making war materiel. It was, it was the triumph of the industrial economy this obsession with efficiency and mass production and the like. And there was a wrinkle, because when the war ended and the captains of industry shifted back to making goods for consumers, they discovered, or for customers as they were called at the time, they discovered that their horror, they had become so efficient at making stuff. They were now capable of making more stuff than people wanted to buy. Now, everyone expected a, a recession or a depression after the war because that was what was traditional when economies retooled back to civilian activities. In fact, there, there was hardly a recession because that moment was when the industrial economy ended. Economies are not done in by their success or, or done in by their failures or their contradictions they're done in by their success. They had met the challenge they'd set out to meet in 1900. They had overcome scarcity. And it turns out in economies, every new abundance creates an adjacent scarcity. And the adjacent scarcity was no longer stuff, it was desire. The missing piece, the great new challenge in the economy, wasn't how to make stuff to fulfill people's desire, but rather how to compel people to desire the abundance people were capable of making. That was the moment the industrial economy ended and the consumer economy began. And it was a profound shift. The new central actor in this economy 
was no longer the worker, the person who produced, but the consumer, the person who purchased. And for me, a suitable symbol of that economy was what was then quaintly called the charge card in the 1930s and 40s, but became the credit card uh, with the launch of ba the Bank AmeriCard in Fresno in 1958. This is the first modern credit card. And it was a vehicle for fulfilling desire, even at times when you might not actually have the money. So the consumer becomes the center, the worker becomes the supporter, the symbol of the, this new consumer economy centered around desire is the credit card, and it was a shift in management. In the industrial economy, this was the person who was the center of activity, the VP of manufacturing. In the first half of the century, they went on to be the CEO. Along comes the consumer economy in the 1950s. The power shifts to the VPs of sales and marketing. After 1955, if you wanted to be a CEO, you had to be in sales and marketing. VPs of manufacturing didn't disappear. Their job was essential, but no longer sufficient. You still had to make stuff, but the people in charge of creating desire were the people who were in control of the show. Now, there's a third person in the equation. I bought it. We'll come back to her, because it turns out she becomes very, very important just a few years ago. Now, the other thing about this was an eerie parallel today to today that TV was a key enabler of this consumer economy. It arrives in the mid, you know, in 1951, the year that television takes off on its curve, perfect vehicle for creating desire. The symbol, as seen on TV, appeared in magazines next to products because it said this product was so important, it showed up on television. That's why you should buy it. And you had stars advertising all this stuff. So it was all about creating desire for stuff, but not just the old stuff. I mean, because after everybody had a second refrigerator, a second car, how many cars or refrigerators did they have? It was about making desire for entirely new kinds of things that never existed before, that never would have made any sense without the sales and marketing channels and things like television. Earth-shaking things, like the Vegematic. <laughs> and this is actually my Vegematic, um, and I actually bought it on eBay. Uh, here it is, first edition, complete with the box and extra trimmers and the like. And it cost me 15 bucks. So think about that. How many Vegematics did they sell you know, to make them 15 bucks today, 60 years after the fact? Now, the interesting thing to think about is humankind has gone through nearly 10,000 years of the urban experiment without everybody waking up in the morning and saying, my life is incomplete without a concertina slicer. And yet, in a very short period of time, the power of the consumer economy caused everybody, every home in this country, to either go out and buy one of these things or aspire to own one. That's the kind of pivot that was going on with the consumer society. So time goes on. They get better and better at creating desire. Credit cards go deeper into our lives. They start changing environments. They change the retail environment, the way you get gas the way, way you interact with salespeople and the like. And, and of course, as time goes on, we become better and better at desiring things we might not need, can't use, and the like. And it starts following a trajectory, a lot like 
the industrial economy. They were more efficient at making stuff. The consumer economy was more efficient than ever at creating desire in consumers. And so I thought about what's a suitable symbol of the consumer economy? The television, that's a visible one. You know, maybe computers later on. No, I think the right symbol of the consumer economy is in this picture. It's, it's not the boat, it's the little things on top. Ocean containers. The intermodal container, first experimented with in 1956, it became a standard in 1968, the year the first microprocessor was, was produced, the 4004, which is an interesting coincidence. The, the ISO standard intermodal container is a perfect symbol of the consumer economy because it represents the whole reorganization of, the, of, of marketing and manufacturing and sales in the fulfillment of desires. The volume of global trade doubled in the decade after the introduction of the container in 1968, and it just keeps growing. This particular ship, the Eugen Maersk, is, is an E-class container ship. It's the largest container ships on the ocean today. Uh, it holds four, just under 14,000 containers, dead weight tons of 156,000 tons. It's uh, 1,300 feet long and 180 feet wide. It's so big that, of course, it can't possibly fit through the Panama Canal. That's why Nicaragua is building a second canal uh, through the, uh, the isthmus just so we can get our stuff more quickly and cheaply. So you might begin to catch my drift here. We start seeing the consequences of success. Marketing and sales convince us ever more to be more efficient, you know, desire more stuff, collect more stuff. We all become like salmon swimming upstream, just instinctively buying more stuff. Phrases like shop therapy come into our, our vocabulary. So what do we do? We got, you know, all this stuff we bought with money we don't have. Well, let's make bigger houses to store more of the stuff we've acquired. And that worked here in California for a while. And then there was a limit on that. And, and, and people had more stuff than they could store in their houses. So, you know, this is the United States. We're innovators. We came up with public storage. You two, for a couple hundred bucks a month, can store all the crap you bought with money you didn't have and things you can't use but don't want to get rid of. The only problem is you got to drive it down there. And some people are too lazy to do it. Well, this is America. We have a solution for that. Uh, pods on portable on-demand storage. Uh, they drive it up to your driveway. They leave it there. You fill it up. They take it off. They store it. And then you pay your fee. As a member of the board at Long Now, I keep thinking we're missing an opportunity here, that the obvious Long Now solution to this is we will buy a big piece of land out in the Nevada desert not a mountain, but a valley, we'll dig a big trench, and we will offer 10K storage, and <laughs> we'll have a one-time fee, the box will be filled up, we'll take it out there, we'll lay it down in stratigraphic order, very carefully cover it up, and leave a love note to the archaeologist of 2200 AD and say, there are a whole bunch of theses here, and you, know, you can write one dissertation after another, and you won't have to be sitting there with a the camel's hair brush getting this stuff out. Well, as you might, have, might guess by now, I, I think that this reached its illogical conclusion, and something had to break. 
and break it did. And I know the exact moment that the consumer economy ended. Friday, November 17, 2008, the market crash. That was not just a market crash. That was a seam between two economies. The consumer economy was doomed by its success in the same way the producer economy was doomed by its success. The American consumer cried, uncle said, we can't buy anything more, and it has now pushed us into an entirely new and very strange and unfamiliar economy. The third person in this equation is at the center of this economy. It's, the consumer is turning into something new. The new scarce resource is not stuff, it's not desire, it's engagement. Uh, and the new central actor in this economy, there are lots of terms floating around. My preferred term is the creator. It's a creator economy, not a creative economy. Creatives are elites who hang things on walls that we pay money for. No, creators are ordinary individuals like you and I, who in the ordinary course of our daily lives often think we're consuming something and in fact we're creating, or consuming and creating in the same single act. Bear with me, I know that sounds a little weird. Let me give you a little more context. This has happened, you know, the, the, the roots for this, now that we see it happening, the roots are fairly deep. This is a famous quote by Herbert Simon in the 1970s. What information consumes is rather obvious. It consumes the attention of its recipients. Hence, a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention. Some people have called this the intention economy. Other people want to call it the engagement economy. I just note that, you know, the consumer economy was all about creating desire. We did not call it the desire economy. This, as I hope to demonstrate in a moment, is about engagement. But I think it's really about creation. That's the most important thing going on. And by the way, just as in the 1950s, the arrival of TV and television titans like ABC, NBC, CBS uh, fueled the consumer economy, you know, these titans are sort of tottering these days. You know, that's why it's mostly Jaratal ads on TV networks. Um, there's an entirely new class of media titans that have appeared. We've done this shift from mass media to personal media. And this is all hugely obvious to everyone in this room. Um, I, and I would imagine some people saying, I came to hear this. But let's just pause and consider how truly strange this shift has been. Imagine sitting in this room in 1987, the year Al Gore invented the internet. <laughs> um, and everybody, and it was, seriously, it was the moment when all this online stuff was sort of seeping into the general consciousness and the like. And imagine saying to folks, we are just around the corner of this vast media revolution. This is going to just blow the doors off of Hollywood and everywhere else and completely change the global landscape and the like. And, um, and they say, so what's it going to be like? And they say, well, you know, LexisNexis and Lockheed Dialogue, you know, those search companies, and they were really, you know, sort of hot in 1987. They cost a lot of money. I, I still remember getting hauled into the dean's office at Stanford because I ran up too big a Lockheed Dialogue bill. I say, well, it's going to be like that, that what we're going to have is this, this wild notion of hypertext 
is going to appear in, in less than 10 years. It's going to sweep through the terrain. Everybody is going to be connected to this global hyper-document system. And they say, well, what are we going to do? Watch movies and, you know, 500-channel universe? No, no, no. The really hot thing is going to be search, that everybody will be completely obsessed with looking stuff up on the internet. And they say, so I mean it's like an encyclopedia? Well, yeah, but more entertaining. And, 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 it, and it's like Lockheed Dialogue. Yeah, but it's free. Um, but the biggest media company in the world will be, by the year 2000, you know, a little after the year 2000, will be a company that only offers a search and it doesn't cost anything. They would have locked you up <laughs> as a dangerous crazy. But if you had said it, then you'd get credit for predicting the arrival of Google. So, you know, we have all these companies, these new personal media companies, but one really important thing about them um, is they enable creation. You know, before, before Twitter, if you wanted to write a, a headline, you had to work for the New York Times. Before YouTube, if you wanted to put a movie on a, a video on a screen, you had to work for a television network. Before, um, before Wikipedia, if you wanted to write an encyclopedia entry, you had to work for Encyclopedia Britannica or be a certified smart person, Nobel laureate or the like. And then there's Google. Google is a really interesting one because it captures the essence of the creator economy. Remember I said sometimes we think we're consuming information, in fact, we're creating it, or vice versa. All these things allow us to create information, but, but just think for a moment. You know, Google, absolutely essential tool in your lives, and probably used it in the last 24 hours. Couldn't possibly live without it. This morning, as I was working on my talk, the network went down. I live in Comcast territory, and I couldn't get to Google. And, 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 and so ask yourself, what was your Google subscription last month? I mean, because didn't you pay Google? Because, of course, Larry and Sergey are both richer than God. And he said, yeah, I didn't pay anything. Well, actually, you pay. We just don't think we pay for Google because the coin we pay with has no value to us. We want the answer. We don't care about our question. Google wants the question. They want to just give you an answer good enough to keep you coming back. That's the essence of the Google ad revenue model, that they aggregate our questions. The creator economy, in many cases, we are unwitting creators. Which, by the way, you know, whenever you encounter a free service in the creator economy, it's like the line from that old movie about Las Vegas. You sit down at a, at a roulette or at a poker table, what's the first thing you do? You look around the table and you ask yourself, who is the sucker? And if after looking around the table, you cannot identify who the sucker is, uh, well, what do you conclude? You are the sucker. A key thing in the creator economy is pay attention to when you may be creating without realizing it and whether you might be paying more than you actually wish to pay for something. So the transitions are everywhere. Older folks in this room will remember once upon a time when we used to just watch movies, you know. Now, World of Warcraft, we play the movies, we participate. And World of Warcraft is ancient, way back in 2004. 
And I'm reminded constantly, being on the Stanford campus, that nobody owns a stereo anymore. The days of listening to music are long gone. You know, Guitar Hero, also ancient software. We participate. You have to participate in the process and create music. So it sounds a little weird and geeky, and these look like geeky things, but let's stay for a moment on video games. Video games are no curiosity. They're bigger than Hollywood. Lots bigger than Hollywood. So how many here folks have played Call of Duty? It's, I realize it's a little, really? <laughs> uh, how about, how about uh, Halo? Okay. You know, I think you all need to get out more. Uh, <laughs> let me give you some numbers here. November 2009, Modern Warfare 2 came out. It sold $310 million of product in 24 hours. Uh, two weeks later, Avatar, the movie, came out. Blockbuster, it only did $73 million in weekend sales. Mod um, Call of Duty Black Ops in 2010, $360 million in 24 hours. In 2011, Modern Warfare 3, $400 million in 24 hours. Harry Potter's Deathly Hallows only did $483 million that weekend. This is bigger than Hollywood, lots and lots bigger. And, you know, that's why you have things like Twitch. You know, uh, imagine you're a venture capitalist. I come to you. I say, I got this really great idea for a, uh, an interactive platform. And, and I say, what does it do? It lets people sit at their computers and watch other people play video games. Would you invest in that? I certainly hope you would have because Twitch, when it uh, got sold to a certain company in Seattle, uh, got sold for just under $1 billion dollars. Um, this is a huge shift. Now, again, thinking, to me it's an indicator. Immersion and participation is the new normal. This is about drawing people in, getting them engaged so companies can capture their data streams. And engagement is not confined to gamers. It's mainstream. I ask you, how, of course Google's a very valuable business tool. How many of you have been sitting at your desk, you're bored, you're waiting for a conference call to begin, and you go to Google and you search cute cat videos or <laughs> Google's an entertainment medium, but it's a funny sort of entertainment medium. You got to put something in to get something out. And that's the pattern of the creator economy is a rebalancing. You know, in the consumer economy, we watched and we bought. In this new economy, we participate and we create. And participation, like searching for cat videos on Google, is not an option. If you don't participate, you don't have the experience. So let me pause and give you the smartest advice I will give you all evening. Read this article, Jean Tirole's Platform Competition in Two-Sided Markets. Now, it always annoys me that the Nobel Committee cannot seem to admit that an American is capable of writing something for the Nobel Prize in Literature, but they really got it right when they gave Tirole and Rocher the Nobel Prize. This is the article that explains why your iPhone is so cheap and your monthly bill is so expensive and Facebook is free. And I will probably get into it in the Q&A, but trust me, if you do nothing else, read this article because it really explains some foundational dy dynamics of this emerging consumer uh, economy or uh, creator economy. But meanwhile, it's not just electronics. Just like the consumer economy uh, changed retail, the creator economy is leaking out into the physical world. 
I took this picture on Market Street recently in front of a, a, a GNC store. And for folks who don't know GNC, they sell bodybuilding powder and, and supplements. And as you can see, I'm not a customer. Um, but it's a pretty masculine store. And it, it struck my attention because it said, I mean, forgive me if I fall into a stereotype here, but as a guy, I shop the way a fox sneaks into a farmer's yard. I want to get in, get my product, avoid eye contact with the salesperson, and get out. And, you know, maybe weakly smile and say, have a nice day, or the like. This is no, 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 you know, uh, Mr. Bodybuilder, pull out your smartphone, scan the QR code, and come in and hang out in our store and engage and explore and look for Easter egg deals and the like. You know, retail is reinventing itself around engagement happening everywhere. Here's a recent announcement in the Chronicle, Target and Google. They created a, a shopping game at a Target store down in, in Sunnyvale. The message is, come play while we track you and discover all of your data streams and consumer preferences. You know, IKEA unfortunately had to stop people playing hide and seek in the IKEA stores recently, but I'm sure it will reappear as an app. And you know, once upon a time with coffee, you used to just buy coffee. Uh, and companies like Hills Brothers worked really hard to take all the little coffee producers' product and turn it into this one consistent, uh, one-size-fits-all for everyone. In the creator economy, we're going away from consistency to difference and to the story. So this, um, this company, Feel Good Foods, was uh, sponsor, uh, running the coffee break at a conference down at Singularity University for us, and I was absolutely arrested by the signs on the top because these, you know, signs, was, they were telling me all the way down, you know, ex ex except for the GPS coordinates of, of the farms this came from. And uh, Kara, Steph, and Jordan were really eager to talk about the coffee. That it wasn't just about the coffee, it's about the interaction, it's about engagement not just with the people behind the counter, but with the coffee growers whom you've never met. Authenticity rules in this world, and engagement rules. It is part of the experience. And of course, we've seen that go a step further. This was a picture I took October 2013 at Starbucks. You may remember Congress was having a little dust up then, and Howard Schultz said, let's all come together. Let's, let's you know, do acts of kindness. So he did a pay it forward thing at Starbucks. And, so here I am at Starbucks, you know, I got my morning run in and I'm racing out, I'm grabbing coffee on my way to campus, I'm still not quite awake, and I get up to the front and the, the barista says, what would you like? And, and was, remember, this was October, and I said, let's see, vente, soy, uh, decaf, uh, peppermint, no whip mocha. Now, I'm just proud of myself that I managed to get all the way through that once without screwing it up. And then... They say, well, what would you like for your other coffee? And I go, my other coffee? I, you know, my spouse isn't here, and, and it, even though this is my local Starbucks, I don't know anybody else in here. They said, well, you have to get another coffee. And, I, and it was quickly becoming apparent, I wasn't gonna get my coffee unless I got somebody else's coffee. And so I turned to the construction guy next to me. He's on his smartphone. He was working up at the college. He said, dude, what do you want? And he looks at me, I said, this odd look. I said, hey, man, I'm married. You know, I am not hitting on you. I just want my coffee. And 
so finally I managed to get out of there. Well, you know, obviously it was success because here's my coffee cup uh, from just about a week and a half ago at Starbucks with the race together uh, uh, thing that we're supposed to have conversations about race at the coffee. And my, my favorite comment, um, well, I will push on, but you know, the point is once upon a time we just bought coffee. Now we have to interact. We, it's about the story, it's about engagement and the like. I love these experiments. And it's also an indicator that we're still in the early days of the creator economy. This is like 1953, 54 in the consumer economy where all sorts of new ideas emerging, all sorts of wonderful creative entrepreneurial things like what Howard Schultz is doing, even if he's a little over the top at moments. And nothing quite makes sense, but that it is a time shot through with optimistic utopianism. That always happens in the early days. All revolutions begin with optimistic utopianism, like Burning Man. Burning Man really captures the creator economy. We all know the model. No motto, no bystanders. I mean, and it's not that, you know, the uh, Black Rock Rangers come around and enforce the no bystander rule. It's just you'd feel so uncomfortable if you weren't a participant that you wouldn't hang out. Again, participation's not an option. It's an essential part of the experience. And the Maker Fair, how many people in this room remember being teenagers? And what was the last thing you saw before you disassembled the family's tape deck? The little sign, warning, do not open, no user serviceable parts inside. Well, this is what we have pushed our way into now, is if you can't open it, you don't own it. And everything is about you know, creation and coming up with wonderful new ideas. This is pretty elite stuff. I am going to omit the, manda the, the obviously mandatory 3D printing slide at this point, uh, which also is an evidence of, of, of the, the touchingly utopian moment today. The essence of the creator economy at this moment is a shift. When stuff was expensive, stuff had status. Today, thanks to 3D printing and, and globalization and the like, stuff isn't expensive. Now stuff is cheap. Creation has status. The hottest devices in our lives are devices that are vehicles for experience and interaction. You know, smartphones, the selfie stick, and the like. So all great stuff, but there's an asterisk on this revolution. It's a hard lesson le learned from the dot-com uh, revolution of the 90s and the bubble. You know, remember that touchingly naive, optimistic period we talked about cyberspace, the economy of gifts, friction-free capitalism, the final arrival of telecommuting and the like, and what we got was, you know, spam, the gig economy, and instead of cyberspace, we got cyberbia. So it's not all going to be happy going forwards. And with that in mind, let me offer um, four rules. Consider these rules for revolutionaries. And I was thinking about it, they may actually apply to the Arab Spring as well as Silicon Valley. Rule one, there are always winners and losers. Rule two, in a revolution, do not confuse the early results with the long-term outcome. Rule three, successful insurgents tend to become overpowerful incumbents. And four, technologies of freedom inevitably become technologies of control. There is a dark side to the creator uh, economy, but the outcomes 
our negative outcomes are not inevitable, provided we are vigilant. And so what I want to do is close covering four areas, just a quick pass on the implications of the creator economy for each. I'll cover privacy, ownership, work, and freedom. Privacy. Brandeis was, was right, as I will explain in a moment. Justice Brandeis's famous uh, comment uh, that privacy is the right to be let alone. But as a forecaster, I spent a lot of time looking for indicators, weird things that don't fit that go passing through my life. And way back in 2011, I had a really weird experience. I was cutting my way across Red Square on my way to a meeting uh, with some Russian officials. And in the middle of Red Square, I just stopped and, and, and almost collapsed in giggles because I realized I was being surveilled by the most advanced surveillance technology on the planet. And imagine if you went back to someone in 1986 and said, oh yeah, you know, I, uh, in Red Square and, and was being tracked by intelligent cameras and the like, and they were capitalist cameras. The most sophisticated camera in Red Square was this thing, the Google Street View tricycle. And I had a really nice conversation with the Street View driver who was sitting there smoking a, a, a cigarette. But the thought that, you know, capitalist cameras were outdoing the former communists right on Red Square was arresting, as it were. Um, and I note, you know, we talk about privacy as a right. Well, privacy ceased to be a pure right a long time ago. And it was well before the creator economy that we paid for privacy. You paid extra for an unlisted phone number, paid extra for a frequent buyer card. Well, now the creator economy and all the technologies lining up make the collection of the data streams coming off of us so much easier. It's more desired by companies, it's more valuable, and therefore it's more costly to get out of the data stream and try and recover your privacy, um, and more expensive. Uh, I was a member of AT&T's technology board in the 1990s, so I tend to follow what they do. Um, and this I just love, that they have announced a new pricing for the ATT Universe Gigapower plan. It costs $110 a month, uh, or $139 a month if you want to preserve your, uh, or preserve your privacy. $110 a month, such a deal, but you give them your data stream. Remember, don't give away something that's more valuable than you realize. Quite simply, what it is in the creator economy is we've all become like Tassel. Tassel is a wonderful polar bear at the Oregon Zoo. She, as you see, is wearing a tag around her, her neck. I mean, we're all just like tag bears, you know. Bear, not Tassel, no, no darts were used on Tassel, but a bear is walking through the woods and suddenly feels something hit it, and it wakes up with a headache and a radio collar around its neck. Well, the only reason Facebook and Google and Twitter and all the rest of them don't shoot darts at us is that we put the radio collars on ourselves. They're called smartphones. You know, think about all the data streams coming off this thing, even when, you know, you're not using it. Um, we happily surrender our privacy for convenience, and eventually we're going to end up buying it back in real time. By the way, Tassel is more like us than I admit. They, I'm told she's very happy to let them put the collar on. And it has a camera on it. So if you go to the Oregon Zoo website, that you can see Tassel's uh, real-time bear cam view as she's walking around the yard. Um, 
sounds kind of interesting. Well, you know, that's Meerkat, Periscope. You too, and, and, and like, like us, Tassel has a very nice designer, uh, designer radio collar. God forbid that it's in a color that clashed with her fur. <laughs> well, consider Google Street, uh, Google Maps. You know, try turning off your location service on your smartphone and the inconvenience you have uh, with Google Maps. You pay for privacy, you pay with inconvenience. And Street View entices us to allow Google to track us. I love this, you know, they, they go down through uh, barrier reefs, they went down to Colorado in 2013, you can see the Street View cam on the top of it, and it allows all of us who've never, you know, rafted the Colorado to raft down without getting wet and have the experience while we're amusing ourselves before a phone call talks. Remember, as a forecaster, I look for indicators. This picture has an interesting clue that we have not yet entirely surrendered to being um, passive uh, sources of data streams for companies. At least some of us are not going down without a fight. So the center picture, you can kind of see something on the beach there. It's a little hard to see. Uh, let me show you the close-up. This was the rafters' response to the arrival of Street View on the Colorado River. Um, it's amusing, but let us face it, resistance is feeble and futile because the economic forces compelling engagement and participation are overwhelming. This protest, marvelous as it was, was quickly reduced to performance art recorded by the very object of protest to be discovered by a bored user like me. You know, we'll keep trying. This is a picture actually shot in 1989. Little brother keeps trying to look back, but it is a rear guard action. And honestly, it's a rear guard action against ourselves because, of course, we're going to trade convenience with the desire for privacy. Is that famous Pogo cartoon one, uh, of Walt Kelly's had, we have met the enemy and he is us. We are willing co-conspirators in this creator economy. The most we can hope for is to go back to Brandeis's observation in 1890 at the time, objecting to newspapers that privacy was the right to be let alone. I hope that is the firewall that we will go forward on. The second issue, ownership, your data or your money is really what it comes down to. You, of course, don't own your smartphone. You subscribe to it. Try using the smartphone without the service. It's just that the phone companies are so screwed up, they charge you for it as well as charging you monthly. Everything coming into our lives today has digital strings attached. It is becoming a world of partial, partial conditional ownership. Own a Prius, don't own the battery. Uh, cable box, don't own that either, uh, but you need it. And, of course, your smartphone, uh, you don't exactly own that either. And it'll get worse. Here's the Google self-driving car uh, on Highway 280. Um, and they will arrive. They'll arrive sooner than people realize. Self-driving cars are coming fast. We will never own self-driving cars. We will subscribe to self-driving cars in a robotic version of, of Uber over the like. Some people will own them. Only the very rich will own them. They will do so either because they want to buy the privacy uh, or to satisfy their ego of having an, a large, expensive object that they only occasionally use. 
the, us, most of us will be riding around in, in shared vehicles that, you know, when, if, if Google ever gets into the business, so the intersection of car share uh, or Uber with this, you know, I, just, I know exactly what it'll look like. The car, you, know, you call it up, the robotic car will show up your door, you'll get in it, um, they will capture where you started, where you ended up, they will have street view cameras on the side of the car taking pictures as it goes, so you'll be an unpaid street view driver, and they'll have a camera inside tracking your iris movement, noting what uh, advertisements you find of interest on the way, so they can serve it up to you when you get back uh, to your desk. You know, more proof, it is simply Google's world, we happen to live in it. So that's the kind of world we're in, and the way you opt out we will own less and less. We will subscribe to more and more. We will have access and we will pay and we will pay and we'll pay because as things are free for a while, then we start to get charged and it's already happening. Third area, work. This is a cover of a magazine from 1931, the Technocrats magazine um, that I have in my library. Um, it is very fashionable at the moment to fret about robots stealing our jobs. Uh, it is fashionable, but beside the point. Now, on the surface, uh, the crater economy looks like it's creating jobs. You know, Mechanical Turk, Kaggle, Waste, Airbnb. Think of all the people making money with these things. Well, let's, let's take Kaggle. How many people in this room are familiar with Kaggle? Good. So for the rest of you, Kaggle is a crowdsourced uh, data, um, data analytics company. Basically what they do is it's predictive modeling and you, you join Kaggle as a member and they have client sponsors who have questions they want to answer and they're set up as prizes. So they have competitions to see who could, who could win the prize. And in 2011, Allstate came to them and they said, yeah, we want to do an experiment with this and, and said, you know, our, our crown jewels at Allstate is our claims algorithm. It determines how risky a potential customer could be. We've optimized it over the last 60 years, generations of actuaries and data sciences. We have it buffed up to a high polish. You know, if you can improve it by one or two percent, we'll give a $10,000 prize. So they put out the prize. They say, you know, it's a three-month competition, 110 teams, 200-plus experts, and they come back to Allstate at the end, and they said, we're really sorry, we did not achieve a 2% increase. Allstate says, no problem, you know, it was a good experiment, and like I said, no, 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 you still got to pay. So well, why do we got to pay? He said, you didn't get 2%. The winning team improved your algorithm by 271%. Now, that sounds like really happy news. It's like, wow, you know, you know uh, data scientists get jobs everywhere. Well, think about all the actuaries at, uh, at, at, at Allstate who, who probably got laid off after that. Um, you know, we're taking the job relationship and we're breaking it up into pieces. You know, we're peeling off healthcare, we're peeling off expectation of retirement. Think of how many so-called contractors in Silicon Valley work longer hours than the few employees left. And the ones that we're not losing that way because of the creator economy, well, basically, I'll give you an example. Here's a piece of spam I got yesterday, and I went, oh, this is perfect. Normally, I just throw out my spam. Are you on Facebook? If you are, I'm sure you already have what it takes to like, share, and comment. Every day, people like you and I are cashing in. Um, I didn't check to see how much money I would be 
paid, but part of what's going on in the creator economy is we are atomizing our jobs out of existence by, you know, have, it's, it's not the jobs that are being taken by algorithms and robots, it's the jobs that were never created to begin with because they're done by machines. You know, Facebook may be free, but has been observed, we're not Facebook's customers, we're Facebook's product. This is unwilling, unwitting creation. And, you know, think about when you do something like Kaggle or uh, TaskRabbit or the like, you know, who, you may be creating a job, but who is losing their job? You know, in a way, is, is this a moment when we're outsourcing our own job to our neighbors for less money and they're doing the same thing to us? Lots of odd contradictions here. You know, during, in the creator, in the, in the, in the producer economy, patriotic Americans in World War I and II rationed and, and recycled. During the Vietnam War in the consumer economy, when the scarce thing was desired, everybody jokes that the last thing you want to do is ration, buy more. It's the buying that supports the war. And here we are into these funny little situations where everything seems to be just the, the option, opposite of what we expect. So the last one is freedom. You know, on the surface you might say, oh, this sounds like a pretty pessimistic observation. We're happily trading our freedom for our convenience. You know, we want our privacy, but please don't turn off my location on my smartphone because, you know, I absolutely need to know where I am going. Well, I think this is a moment in a moment, in fact, when we are all struggling to coexist with each other, we now have to learn how to coexist with Snoopy algorithms and robots invading every corner of our lives. I'm actually an optimist. I think the secret is interdependence. Maybe all of this complexification of the landscape, this spirit of creation, witting and unwitting, the conversation, knowing where your coffee comes from and the like, is going to finally help us appreciate interdependence. I'll close with some wisdom from a poet here in San Francisco in 1967 who put it very nicely in this poem. Watched, all watched over by machines of loving grace. If you read that last Last stanza, I like to think of a cybernetic ecology where we are free of our labors and joined back to nature, returned to our brothers and sisters and all watched over by machines of loving grace. Well, in a world where privacy is now the right to be left alone, and hopefully robots do take our jobs, but we all get to continue to create, maybe we will discover interdependence. And maybe, just maybe, that the most important short-term thing to come out of this emerging creator economy that will shape the next half century is an appreciation, thanks to the data streams, of just how deeply we all are connected to each other. Thank you. So, Hey, Come sir. on up, John. I'll bring my Vegematic in case we need to chop something. <laughs> you can get those in Sur La Table these days, too. Yeah, no, well, it's, uh, <laughs> they do have those fancy new ones, but uh, 
By the way, on this Vegematic, look up Ron Coquille, uh, the founder of Ronco. Um, the essence of the Vegematic was you couldn't have sold it before the television arrived. You know, if you walk past it on a shelf, you'd either say it's useless or dangerous or both. Uh, but it was that constant reminder on TV, the, the awakening of desire. It slices, it dices, and wait, there's more. I, I think one of the biggest consumer lessons I ever learned was from um, a senior executive at Procter & Gamble, uh, and we were talking about toothpaste. And, and I said, uh, I was asking a question, he says, no, 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 you don't understand. No entirely new product has ever succeeded in the marketplace without first offering the prospect of a life-changing experience. <laughs> Fluoride and toothpaste, that's why they had the couple running down the beach into each other's arms. It wasn't about white teeth. It was about all the wonderful things that would come to you if your teeth were just a little bit whiter. And they're still selling that today. So, so Stuart uh, noted that I was one of those people who quoted Paul perhaps too much, which I plead guilty to, and there's a reason why, and that is re reporters um, are suckers for people who give good quotes. And there was a period uh, during the PC era and thereafter where I quoted Paul a lot, and I have one story before I ask questions, because um, Paul literally gave me the best pull quote of my career. And, and this was this uh, uh, story that I was no, working. John, this is not a roast, this is a conversation. <laughs> I said just one story. Um, so this was in the Week in Review section. I, I wrote a story uh, before the web on uh, the rise of, of uh, keyboard sex, and I called Paul up to say, you know, well, what do you think about this? And without missing a beat, he said, you know, there's a lot of heavy clicking going on out there. <laughs> I mean, you can't pay for stuff like that. So, um, you know, we could just go <laughs> over to the interval now and... <laughs> Stop all this. Uh, you know, the other great thing about being around Paul is, is you get lots of great field trips with, from being around Paul. I've, I've landed on aircraft carriers with Paul. Um, we've, uh, we've followed we all kinds of... We took off, too. We did take off, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's true. We did take yeah, off a carrier. That's right, in a COD. And uh, we've done autonomous car things. Um, Paul helped me find the Google car. We broke the story of the Google car together. Um, which was hiding in plain sight for a year before anybody noticed it actually driving on California freeways. So we've had it. And as a, as a forecaster, the way I noticed it was, I mean, look for things that don't fit. Our nature is to just look, you know, for things we expect. Anytime you see something you don't expect, um, take a note of it. I always have a pocket camera, a real camera, not this dopey camera on my smartphone, and a pad of paper and like, I was going down 280 at one point, and I noticed the oddest thing. There was a Prius that was actually going the speed limit. I mean, you know, on 280, the highway patrol gives you a ticket if you're going less, you know, if you're going less than 80. And, and then I noticed there was a bump on the roof, and I thought, gee, that doesn't quite look like a Street View camera. And, and, and I went, huh, that's, that looks like a Velodyne sensor. Um, and, and we had lost a professor, uh, Sebastian Thrun, who'd been head of our AI lab at Stanford. He'd disappeared to Google and so we're kind of where it was. So I pull up on the driver's side, and the driver's not touching the wheel, and I slow down to go back to the other side, uh, the passenger side, and there's a geek boy with a laptop. And I think, son of a gun, Sebastian's running robots in the wild. And, <laughs> And, 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 and I called up John, and he'd already, he said, oh, yeah, you found out about it at a cocktail party. That's right. My, um, 
My, uh, the, the way this story came uh, to be was my uh, cousin's son had a friend in high school who mentioned to him that um, he was being paid $15 an hour by uh, Google for sitting in cars but not driving them. And we put Loose two and two together. Sink yeah. ships. Yeah. So let, let, let me ask you a little bit about method, because you sit somewhere between uh, social scientists and journalists. You're neither. What's a forecaster, and how do you do what you do, and why is it different than what social scientists and journalists do? Um, I, I actually... I think more that I'm, I'm living on the ragged edge between the qualitative and the quantitative. There are times, as I, and I have, I've just finished the quarter at Stanford and just finished reading student papers, so I have to kind of back at this out a little bit, but um, that as a forecaster, it's part anthropologist, part sociologist, a lot of historian of technology, and lots of different, lots of different things, but uh, the way I think of it is, as I said earlier, looking for things that don't fit. You know, Bill Gibson famously said, the future's already arrived, it's just not evenly distributed yet. And those things that don't fit are a little bit like threads hanging down from the future. And so the essence of forecasting, at least the way I do it, there's, method, there's a formal method to my madness. Uh, I have a whole set of heuristics I follow. Um, but what the method is, is a discipline. It's a frame of mind. I mean, some of the methods are very formal. I just left the company I co-founded four years ago, and we were doing big data analytics forecasting for Wall Street. But for the most part, forecasting is applied common sense. And I'll just give you one, one example that the point of method in forecasting, so whether it's like scenario analysis, Peter Schwartz, uh, at, uh, as part of Long Now, is, is the master of, of scenarios and like, or some other method. You rely on method so you know that moment when your instinct, well, the point of method is to get you to a point of robust intuition, trustworthy, robust intuition, where you have a sense of what's going on and you know you can act on incomplete information with, with conviction. And the method helps you in those situations where instinct tells you one thing and the method tells you the other. It's, it's a little bit like driving a car on an icy road. You know, the car starts to spin. Newtonian physics tells you one thing, to turn with the spin. And your lizard brain is screaming the opposite, turn you know, against the spin. And if you follow your brain, you're gonna follow, hit the tree. And if you listen to Newton, you'll do just fine. Well, the essence of forecasting casting method is to give you the tools to avoid hitting the tree and get a further sense of what's down the road. So a couple of data points. Uh, is that vague enough for you? Well, let me, let, let me sort of pursue this a little bit with just a couple of data points. Don't take my class. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of discussion that we're in, a, in some kind of a bubble again. And I, I just was struck with something today, and I wanted to ask you to sort of interpret it. Because I remember that Kara Swisher at the Wall Street Journal started a column called Boomtown shortly before the dot-com collapse. It might have been a couple of weeks, and I always thought that was richly ironic. And I went to KQED's website today, and I discovered that they've created a column called Boomtown. And I thought, that can't be good. <laughs> <laughs> Where are we? Are we, are we in a, a situation yeah, like this we were 15 this, years ago? This is not like the dot-com bubble. Um, uh, that, for starters, um, there, 
take any one company and there is lots of substance behind it. During the dot-com bubble, clueless in, uh, investment professionals on Wall Street and the general public were investing in companies with shaky models like pets.com. Jeff Bezos just paid a billion dollars for Twitch, that company that allows people to watch other plays video games. Jeff Bezos is a very smart strategist. He did not pay too much for Twitch. So it's not like there's nothing there. Um, it's also uh, not a bubble for another reason in that the public doesn't get to participate in this. You know, the biggest problem in Silicon Valley today with this bubble, um, for example, uh, who here uh, got to invest in YouTube when they went public? That'd be nobody, because they were acquired by Google. The number of companies co going public and actually being accessible to ordinary citizens to be able to invest in is shrinking. And that, I think, is going to retard things. That part is, is a problem. But I'll tell you a story about bubbles in Silicon Valley. There was one time I was having breakfast in Cupertino with a guy who had just stepped down as the head of one of our biggest, most important companies in Silicon Valley. And we were having uh, uh, breakfast at the Good Earth. And he said, you know, I've had it with this place. It's too crowded. Houses cost too much. The traffic's terrible. You can't get anywhere. It's got to be over that Silicon Valley has hit the end. Well, his name was Jack Tremiel. He was the head of Atari, and this was around 1986. <laughs> um, there are some reasons yeah. why Silicon yeah. Valley will, it's will more resilient. Yeah, I read a book uh, called The High Cost of High Tech in 1985. Yes. How'd that work out? The Valley is very resilient. Well, yeah, that was a good book. That was about the high social cost. Yeah, yes. yeah. So, but I mean, I just got a, a press release for a product uh, that's sole feature was a, it was a vodka that was Bluetooth programmable with an LED. <laughs> and I guess you can get it at Costco. I didn't know that, but, but I mean, we're, at, we're at that. <laughs> I'll sell you this. It's a first edition. I mean, is that any crazier than what we saw earlier? So I was um, at a, a meetup in Sunnyvale um, last week, and there was a transportation planner who said 2020 is the year that 101 breaks. And I was thinking about that when you, when you, uh, when you were talking about uh, self-driving cars. Do they solve the problem? Uh, you know, ownership or non-ownership of, of uh, self-driving cars, do they solve the problem of transportation? Well, you talk to all the self-driving car gurus, Sebastian and, and the others, they say, look, you know, you could put... Think about the, the two, you, you all, I'm sure, follow the two and a half second rule, which is you count one 1,000, two 1,000, that's the distance you should be in front of the car in front of you, right? Raise your hand. Uh, well, the freeway, even when it's crowded, unless the traffic's actually stopped, is mostly empty. And robots could ride six inches off each other's bumpers. But as a forecaster, the other piece of data I would add to this, there's a really interesting transportation researcher at the University of Michigan who has come out with data and said that the year of peak automobile was actually three years ago. That the number of miles being driven by Americans is decreasing, uh, gas consumes decreasing, obviously, miles being driven, number of cars being purchased, that we probably have already passed the peak. Okay. I have more questions, but I'll start to weave in our questions from the audience because we have more questions in time. Um, do I... Read people's names as part of the question? Yes. yes. Okay. Um, this is from Kelly Arbuckle. Maybe it's Arbuckle. Yeah. If economies end upon achievement of a success, 
What does success look like in the creator economy? Thanks. Yeah. Um, uh, it's a, it's, it's, it is the question. Uh, and, and thank you for asking it, even though I don't have a decent answer. As I said at the start, I'm sharing stuff I'm in the process of thinking through because I know I'll get ideas back. My hunch is, I mean, think about, and I don't mean to pick on Google. I, I really like Google as a company and, and the like. But, you know, why did Google get into Street View? Well, their model was built on us typing in information for free. And the problem with that is we could only type so fast, and we had to sleep and do other things. And so they then expanded it to the rest of the world and said, well, you type in for us too. Um, and then they pretty much saturated the planet, and, and then they realized humans are not reproducing fast enough to support the Google model. And so he said, well, we need the data streams off their devices, so let's give them street view, and then their phones will always give us data, and let's do robotic cars, and we'll get the data from that. Um, so I think what this ends up becoming is, is a, you know, a very, well, how many people have a Nest uh, thermostat? I do, you know, we all do, you know, now, uh, you know, people get to figure out if they can crack it, they can figure out when you're not home and know when to rob you that that thing is thinking all the time. They could do that from the drop cam. Why do they need the nest? Yeah, a drop cam. Oh, yeah, I mean, good God, show on. I mean, your house will end up becoming a big data stream. So we have a while to run before that gets saturated. Um, but I think that's what becomes overabundant is, is the data part. And uh, the short term is the new scarcity is, is actually algorithms and processing. So this is going to push push the computer industry. This is what's going to create the demand for quantum computers if we ever are lucky to actually build one and the like. So this is, this is, a, this is a good follow-on um, from Emmanuel, Emmanuel Meta. Does the um, creator economy um, exacerbate income equality, and how do you combat that if it does? It absolutely exacerbates income equality. Absolutely. The good news is we're, we are solving global poverty. Uh, the bad news is that the gap between the richest and the poorest is only going to increase. Um, the companies that are getting biggest are the ones who harness the smallest quantum of information. Um, so everybody here uses Google, but you know there are probably five people in here who've actually written a Wikipedia entry. That's why Wikipedia is a not-for-profit and Facebook's wildly profitable. Um, the companies that can are the best at aggregating the information are the ones who will grow the fastest. And I also, I'll offer a forecast. Um, I remember visiting Facebook uh, two days before they went public, and they had just walked, moved into a new campus, and I was meeting some of the executives, and after meetings, I said, well, you want to walk around? We walk around campus. It was empty. You could have shot a cannon down the center of that campus and not hit a person. And I thought, well, you know, it's space for growth. And I this is way too empty. And so I think about this. Facebook, they had done $3.7 billion profit the year before, or, or gross, a uh, billion dollars profit. They accounted for more, more traffic on the internet than Google. Um, they were growing at this outlandish number of users per day. And at the time they went public, they had a total of 2,400 employees. Google, Facebook at the time, 
was not a company. Facebook was a machine. It was a computer that hired a couple of people to figuratively walk around the walls, halls and make sure the plugs didn't fall out of the walls, depriving the computers. <laughs> so are you forecasting a people-free economy? Or is it something well, I'm else? I, I think it's just it, it's sooner than we realize we will have a company go public on the stock exchange or get acquired that, you know, there's a CEO and a bunch of algos. And the con that leads to concentration of power and concentration of wealth. I mean, it's, it, I think the pull away of the one, you know, the 0.01% is, is going to accelerate. And what do we do for a livelihood? Well, there's a wonderful story uh, in, in the 19, uh, well, you tell the story. Oh, dear. <laughs> General Motors, head of the union. Oh, no, no. Uh, uh, yes, well, it, it was at GM, it was Ford, I think. And uh, well, uh, Walter ahead. Ruth, getting, Ruth yeah, getting the tour in the story. 50s, and the, the, the guy who was giving him the tour was showing him uh, these fancy robots, and he sort of turned to him and teased him and said, you know, how are these robots going to pay union dues? And Ruther looks back at him and says, how are they going to buy cars? No. I think we're headed, uh, the, the future, the people are really missing the point on this, are robots stealing our jobs. The whole idea is like a comet on some loopy orbit that shows up about every 20 years. In the 1930s, it was the technocrats. In the 1960s, uh, there were um, people, uh, and very smart people, the sociologist Daniel Bell was saying robots would replace work by the mid-1980s, and the great social challenge would be what to do with all our spare time and he posited the leisure society, and I don't know about you, but I can't wait. Um, <laughs> that um, uh, I think we're in for a very turbulent period, and I think one of the first consequences is we've already unlocked the job relationship into pieces. Um, think about the contradictions that have happened in earlier economies. I think the most interesting contradiction is going to be that people realize they're gonna have to pay people even if they don't work. So pay close attention to the universal basic income movement. This idea, you pay someone a salary even if they don't work, sounds outlandish, sounds absolutely outrageous until you look into it, and then you discover economists on the left think it was a great idea, economists on the right, Milton Friedman thought it was okay. a great idea. There's been some very interesting experiments. Nixon proposed it. And he did, yeah, I mean, let's not mention that if I kill it. Um, I, I actually think we will see that start to happen, that because of concentration of wealth, um, people realize they have to pay universal basic income. It's not welfare. We don't have time to talk about it here. It is absolutely intriguing and worth looking into. I'm not predicting the specifics but I would be astonished if this isn't taken up so very seriously. There have been some fascinating experiments in some Indian um, yeah. states where they've created right. these economies, and in fact, all those measures where people are supposed to come la become lazy, that doesn't happen. Right. The well, there, was, there was a really successful experiment in Denmark, but you know, how can you generalize Denmark to anywhere else? <laughs> you know? um, but the experiments in India, they, they had one very large-scale uh, experiment where in the village they gave everybody this income, and all, all the way including the kids, with no strings attached. And then they had other villages where they did something more like traditional uh, aid. And what they discovered, one, people didn't get lazy. Like in Denmark, people were doing all sorts of wonderful artistic things. And in India, they discovered 
the more constraints they put on it, the less value they got out of the money. Just giving the money and letting them do it allowed creative things to flourish. So along those lines, well, just one thought: where we end up here. I have a, a, I, my belief is that at the end of the day, this is about stories. You know, far as I can tell, there are three things that motivate people: the desire to be useful, the desire to tell stories, and the desire to collect stuff. <laughs> um, We're back to pods. <laughs> and I really think that at the end of the day, it's 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 that the creator economy is about stories. That's what all this experience is. That's why selfie sticks are being banned everywhere. <laughs> so Kevin Kelly has a question on that. What are the prospects for professional creators? Is there a business model to support full-time creation and mastery of a media? Well, you know, we have seen, ironically, the wipeout of, of creatives because of technology. You know, I have a good friend who, for 20 years, made a very profitable business selling stock photos and his business died in less than six months. Um, and we see that a lot of professionals falling apart. I think that this is very much a star-making machine uh, for professional creatives. It's opening up the doors. The good news about ordinary creators is among them are extraordinary people we don't know about, like people in the middle of the desert burning, burning sand into a glass bowl. Uh, Halo. Um, how many people here know who Justin Deese is? Raise your hands. One. <laughs> okay. Uh, maybe if I tell you his halo handle, it's uh, Justin, I got your pistola, Deese. Um, Justin, Justin became a, a professional, he was a serious halo gamer. He became uh, a, a professional halo gamer at 17. And by October 2013 at the World Halo Championships, where he won $70,000 in winnings, uh, he had earned a quarter million dollars in Halo comp competition uh, winnings before he turned 20. So, star-making machine. Plenty of room for creators to move up and become professional creatives. It may not be stable, but It'll be hugely entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> Donna Teresa from Livestream. Uh, regarding scarcity driving an economy, considering the wage gap between rich, middle class, working poor, what would an alternative barter or non-government-backed currency economy look like in the US sometime in the next 100 years, e.g. Bitcoin? <laughs> <laughs> Boy, um, come up to me afterwards. I, a, a team of five students uh, uh, in my class just did a forecast of, of where Bitcoin will go. My short-term take is um, don't confuse Bitcoin with cryptocurrency. That Bitcoin is the first cryptocurrency good enough to be uh, criticized. Um, and cryptocurrency is hugely destabilizing it may be what finally pushes the tottering nation-state order uh, into real chaos. Yeah, okay. So uh, we're back to method. From Matthew Rudolph, what are the best arguments against the practice of forecasting and the best arguments, I guess, in favor of it? So defend, defend and criticize your art. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> well, first of all, the, let me... Let me answer it by explaining what the point of forecasting is. The point of forecasting is not to predict the future. 
Um, you know, as, as our famous philosopher Yogi Berra said, prediction's really difficult, especially when it's about the future. Um, <laughs> it's not just that prediction is difficult, it's actually logically impossible, uh, unless you're a fundamentalist religious type who believes God has a plan, it's all preordained, but why bother to look because you can't change the outcome. Um, my po intellectual posture is that our actions in the present affect outcomes in the future. So the act of forecasting isn't predicting a specific outcome. It's mapping a cone of uncertainty that extends out from the present. It's saying, how broad is that cone? How much uncertainty is there? What are the things that define the edges of that cone? Broad, narrow, what are the possible paths outwards? And what are the insights I can take to make intelligent action in the present that affects the outcome? So for me as a forecaster, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm wrong at least six times before breakfast. Um, and, and I've been wrong plenty of times, and I, I often get lots of credit for things that I really didn't say, like a Wired magazine, I did an article, I think in 94, titled, It's the Context, Stupid. And, and you know, if you're vague enough in your forecast, everybody thinks you're a genius. Um, <laughs> I said, the future belongs not to the content providers, but the companies that, that sort and search, and everybody says I predicted Google. I had no idea Google was on it. But I'm wrong so much of the time, I'll take it. Um, so being wrong isn't the problem. The ones that hurt is when you're right and you can't and you didn't effectively communicate it to someone to make the right action. That's, that's what hurts. But at the end of the day, forecasting is systematically applied common sense. Everybody should be doing it. Don't listen to extras. Oh, one other thought. Default. The default posture um, if you're ever asked about something, offer a pessimistic forecast. <laughs> Always be pessimistic, because if you offer an optimistic, if you offer a pessimistic forecast and it comes to pass, everybody think you're a genius. Uh, and I won't mention the names of people that this works very well for. If the forecast doesn't come to pass, they'll have forgotten you made the forecast. And so you won't get dinged. But if you offer an optimistic forecast and it doesn't come to pass, they'll be really ticked off at you. And they'll always remember that. So just default is if you don't know what's ahead, say something pessimistic. It, it, <laughs> it's 9 o'clock, and one last quick question um, from Andy Lee. What comes after the creator economy? Um, yeah, oh, God. <laughs> you know, that's the problem with John is he always asks one question too many. Um, <laughs> I mean, honestly, I don't know. I'm still trying to make sense of this thing. And if I'm right, it's about 30 years, 30 years off. But I think it is the, the amalgam of, of robots, you know, and, 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 and an economy that is an automated economy um, that, that is, is doing a lot of things itself. Think of the World Wide Web today. I mean, how many people today read an article that wasn't written by a human? Uh, you all did. If you read something on the web today, chances are you read something. But there's this whole other part of the red that is producing data that's only read by other robots. And that part of the web is actually bigger than the part of the web that, um, that we access. So I don't know if these super intelligent robots will ever arrive, you know, the ones that are evolving faster than us and smarter than us. Um, but I am on record as, with a forecast of the outcome if that does happen. If super intelligent, super fast evolving robots should arrive, if we're very, very lucky, they will treat us like pets. <laughs>
It's <laughs> and, and if we are very, very unlucky, they will treat us like food. <laughs> and on Should that note, let's please give Paul a hand. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> this seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.